Coming up in this episode, is the West and the U.S. asleep at the switch as Russia changes its warfare game? David Kilcullen, renowned military expert, gives us an idea what they're up to. I go back to February of 1993 when Jim Woolsey, who was President Clinton's CIA director, was doing his uh, testimony for his confirmation hearing in front of the Senate. And he was asked, how do you see the post-Cold War environment? This is about 18 months after the fall of the Soviet Union. And Woolsey said, we have slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. Kilcullen connects the dots and paints a startling picture that reveals one message. Russia is really not the friend of the U.S. or the West. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by TrueCar. In order to feel comfortable that you're getting a fair price, you need pricing context, information that empowers you to feel confident. With TrueCar, you'll see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local TrueCar certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by a TrueCar certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. TrueCar users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. And TrueCar shows their customers all of their available incentives before they arrive at the dealership. More than 3 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. And there are more than 13,000 TrueCar Certified Dealers nationwide. So when you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Very graphic situation. San Bernardino. An act of terrorism. Paris. An attack on all of humanity. The Islamic State. I'm back, Obama. They want you to imagine them in the shadows. Hostile nation states. Can't inflict mortal damage to the United States. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Russia's made it very clear since the fall of the USSR that it would get revenge against the West and the U.S. for what happened to it. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said on several occasions, in his own words, the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 21st century was the breakup of the Soviet Union. And gradually since then, he's set about rebuilding, trying to return Russia to the superpower status and size it was during the Cold War. For many years, U.S. officials have said the Cold War is over. But we had a conversation with a man who had a different view. His name is David Kilcullen, a lieutenant colonel in the Australian Military Reserve and former chief strategist in the Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the U.S. State Department. He also was a senior counterinsurgency advisor to General David Petraeus in 2007 and 2008. 
we sat down in Sofia, Bulgaria, where he was giving a presentation to NATO. His presentation made it clear. To the Russian government, the Cold War never ended, and through a series of secret operations, they may now have the upper hand. The next 15 minutes could radically change your view on the secret war between the U.S. and Russia. I go back to February of 1993, when Jim Woolsey, who was President Clinton's CIA director, was doing his uh, testimony for his confirmation hearing in front of the Senate. And he was asked, how do you see the post-Cold War environment? This was about 18 months after the fall of the Soviet Union. And Woolsey said, we have slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. My argument is that for 10 years, from 1993, actually literally exactly 10 years, from February 1993 to March 2003, we lived in a Woolseyan security environment where we just worried about non-states, failing states, and weak states, things like peacekeeping in Bosnia or Rwanda or Somalia. We didn't worry about state adversaries because the Russians were gone from the scene as a major adversary temporarily. After 2003, when President Bush invaded Iraq, we found ourselves massively struggling with a series of non-state actors, and we inadvertently showed all of our potential state adversaries how to fight us, right? Like if you try to fight the US like it's Desert Storm, you're going to lose. If you, if you try to fight them like it's Iraq, you've got a much better chance. And after about August of 2013, after the failure of the red line in Syria, we now have this resurgence of state threats. But as the states have come back, they're actually operating much more like non-state actors now. So to shorthand, the dragons are back, but they're operating like snakes. So the two actually have swapped tactics, huh? The- yeah, I wouldn't say they've swapped necessarily, but they've copied each other. So non-state actors are fighting like states, and the classic example of that is ISIS. And I gave a bunch of examples of how they essentially use state-like tactics. And then you have groups like the Russians and the Chinese and others who are drawing in techniques that have typically been used by non-state actors and melding them with their dominant you know, state-based approach. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's a convergence more than a like a, a flipping. And one of the uh, interesting techniques or tactics that you mentioned that the Russians are employing in their uh, non-traditional warfare uh, prospectus is manipulation of refugees. It's this mass migration we've seen this this year and last year. Um, they've played a role in that, and I'm not even sure a lot of people realize that they were involved in that. So give us an example. Well, I think the example that jumps out, and I'm sure that if you were to speak to Russians, they would deny they had anything to do with this, right? but that's kind of the whole point. Um, in an area called um, Kirkenes, which is 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, a very long way from where any refugees are actually coming from. Uh, In a space of about six weeks in the summer of 2015, 5,000 refugees crossed the border from Russia into Norway, mostly Syrian refugees, on bicycles. And the, um, the border treaty between Russia and Norway says that it's illegal to cross the border on foot. And so these guys came across on children's bicycles. And I showed a photo of all these bicycles that were, were stacked up in a, uh, near a church uh, in the area where they came across. Um, they came from a town on the other side of the border where I doubt there was 100 bicycles of that kind um, available. So there's at least strong circumstantial evidence that they were assisted in their crossing by some kind of Russian local or national authorities. 
in part to uh, create a bandwidth problem for the guys trying to, to guard the border. That happened last year. This year we've seen similar events in Finland and a couple of other places in the, the same area in the Baltic states. And I think we have to recognise that the manipulation of mass population movement is becoming part of the repertoire for some of our adversaries. Whether and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't single out the Russians. Actually, I think any state actor is going to be in a position to start manipulating that. But back to the Russian situation and even these others as well. It suggests that they have spent a lot of time thinking about how to uh, get around the the rules and the laws and the treaties. So it's not something that they decided yesterday or last week or last year to do. It's something they probably have been working on for a while. Yeah, there's there's an article that got a lot of play in the military world a couple of years ago by Valery Gerasimov, who's the Russian chief of staff. Um, and it's been described by some people as the Gerasimov doctrine. There's an active debate whether it's actually a real thing, right? Whether he, he was just giving a speech to a technical audience or whether it's real. But the people who believe that there's this idea of the Gerasimov doctrine also describe it as new generation warfare um, or non-linear warfare. And the idea is that what Gerasimov says in his, in his article is classical military means are no longer as important in warfare as traditionally non-military means. And he gives a series of examples, economic, legal, humanitarian, which I think is an interesting choice, um, environmental. And he talks about how um, you achieve manoeuvre across a much wider space than just military kinetic manoeuvre. And if you get blocked in your kinetic manoeuvre, you have other options to continue to achieve what you want to achieve. Um, or you can use the non-kinetic to shape kinetic. Now, actually, this is a common idea that goes back to Russian-Soviet thinking uh, 70 years ago. A guy called um, Mikhail Tukhachevsky invented this stuff in the, in the 20s. It was purged by Stalin in 1937, so it didn't kind of go very far in Russian theory. But um, there's a lot of very advanced Russian theory on how to do this stuff. And I, as I said in the presentation, there's a similar theory known as unrestricted warfare, which was popularized by two Chinese officers about 15 years ago. And you can see some of that. It, we don't think it's official doctrine, but you can see some of that playing out in the way that the Chinese have operated uh, in their approach. And again, this is not necessarily to critique the Russians or the Chinese. It's just to point out that our definition of warfare is much narrower than theirs. Uh, and we run the risk of uh, what I call being conceptually enveloped, right? If we, if we have this very narrow definition, they have a broad one. And another example of how the Russians have been very clever uh, in terms of their approaches to achieving their goals was the situation in Georgia. Tell us about that example. Yeah, so in August of 2008, when the Russians and the Georgians were fighting, um, in the early stage of the operation or the early stage of the Russian uh, action against Georgia, there was a very large-scale hacking assault on the Georgian government's uh, web presence, mainly distributed denial of service attacks uh, coming from criminal and uh, non-state groups that were in some cases probably sponsored by state elements in Russia, but in other cases they might have just been like cyber irregulars who kind of self-recruited to, to jump on the bandwagon and, and help. That didn't really have much effect on the, on the Georgian defences until day two of the operation when two hackers got into the bank account that the Georgians used to pay for commercial satellite imagery to run their air defence system. And they drained the money from their bank account. The next day, the Georgians didn't have any money to pay for a satellite imagery. 
air defence system went down, the day after that they stopped the conflict because they knew that they were now defenceless. So you could argue that the conflict in Georgia, even though it involved tanks and heavy artillery and lots of combat in that Chink Valley area on the on the on the coast in uh, in Georgia, actually was won by two hackers out of Moscow. Do you think though that that was the intent though to drain the bank account so that the uh, air defense system would go down, or was that a was that a collateral? So approach? both the both the strength and the weakness of this kind of approach that we're seeing from the Russians is it doesn't actually involve very tight central control. It's actually quite opportunistic. Improv. Right. So it may well be that the guy. Um, that um, planned the cyber side of the Georgia operation had no idea that two of the hackers were going to get in and drain the account, but they were ready to exploit that when it happened. It can work both ways, right? When the um, Russian-backed Ukrainian separatists shot down the Malaysian airliner, almost certainly that wasn't directed as part of a plan by their Russian backers, but it comes with the territory of being ad hoc and improv that, you know, sometimes stuff's going to happen that you don't plan on, good or bad. Um, So it comes with risks, but I think um, people would say that if you're playing jazz and the guy that you're taking on is, is following a classical script, you're more agile than he is, right? You can flex when stuff changes, and the advantages of that probably outweigh the disadvantages of, of sometimes things go wrong. Okay, so you're here talking about this. You're talking about what you know, what you know, and what you've learned, and this is in a, a concept development and experimentation uh, platform forum. Um, is NATO ready and able to take advantage of what you're saying today, or do they need some time to get up to speed? Well, by definition, concept development is supposed to be leading edge, right? It's supposed to be helping the alliance to think beyond uh, today's challenges. So to some extent, by definition, you know, it's not supposed to be something that the alliance is, is doing now. Um, but I think it's my short answer would be it depends who you talk to. Some countries are really thinking along these lines. Uh, some are still very much focused on conventional maneuver. In the U.S., of course, we've been through this period of thinking about the third offset strategy, which is very much about technology as a means for offsetting uh, anti-access area denial type techniques. It may well be that we're past that point now, uh, that in fact the challenge is not so much A to AD, it's this ambiguous warfare model, and that actually you know, maybe the, the third offset technologies will be part of the solution. I don't think they'll be um, irrelevant. But they can't be the whole solution. We have to have a, a broader understanding of what we mean by warfare and how it works. Anything else you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important as it relates to your presentation and the challenge? I think just the idea of creative ambiguity, right? So when the Russians went into uh, Crimea, these guys turned up the so-called little green men, or the, what the Russians call the polite men, right? Turned up in their uh, uniforms driving you know, Russian uh, vehicles with Russian number plates uh, from the Russian base just down the road, but they had no badges on, and the Russian government just totally denied that they had anything to do with it, right? And I described it at the time as implausible deniability, right? Like, it, they weren't plausibly denying, they were just they were just denying, uh, and no one really believed them, but there was enough ambiguity there that NATO struggled to come up with a unified response. And I think what we're seeing here is an example of what I would call ambiguous warfare. So having watched this develop in the the next years since then, it's not about running a deception plan that's so believable that everybody believes the deception. It's just about creating enough ambiguity and doubt 
that people can't get their act together to come up with a unified response in time to deal with what you're doing. And I think when I look at, for example, what just happened in the US elections and the discussion of, you know, Russian manipulation of information warfare, um, whether or not you believe that that was designed to support one candidate or another, I think it's pretty clear that it was designed to generate, let's say, doubt about the validity of information, doubt about the legality or the legitimacy of process, uh, just to create enough chaos that there's a window of time that allows people to to operate and do what they want to do. Um, that's not unique to the Russians. You know, I mean, the Israelis do it every time uh, we have a, a presidential election as well. So it's not just our enemies; some our allies do it as well. But I think the uh, the implication of this is people have figured out that there are ways to take on the U.S. and the rest of the alliance that don't involve going toe to toe on high tech space age technology. They may just involve fairly low tech but creative applications of basically consumer electronics that are now out there in the environment. And what do you believe with reference to uh, what the Russians were doing, their, their, their objective in uh, meddling in the U.S. election? Well, I, I have a theory, and if, if, you, if you believe that it's true that they did meddle, and we, we know that the, um, the intelligence community think that that's true, um, then the question would be why. Was it because they wanted to see Donald Trump elected because he's sort of a Manchurian candidate for the Kremlin? I think that that's actually quite unlikely. I think what's more likely is that the Russians have things that they want to do in Syria and Ukraine and the Baltics and the Arctic and possibly in other places, and they are interested in generating as chaotic a political transition as they can so that our attention is focused inward and we're in the middle of dealing with a succession challenge that then means we don't have the ability to respond effectively to um, uh, you know, external challenges. Now, I could be totally wrong about that. It's a testable proposition because if I'm right, what we're likely to see in the next month or so between now and the inauguration of President Trump is damaging leaks against him this, of the same nature that we saw against Hillary Clinton. Uh, so because that would then suggest that the interest of whoever's doing these leaks is not to favor Trump, but just to create chaos. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if you, if in fact you were trying to do that, you would hold your best stuff back till after the election and then hit the winner with that after the election to create massive chaos. David Kilcullen, author, strategist, and counterinsurgency expert. There are already some examples of his proposition emerging and we'll keep an eye on it in the coming weeks. But coming up in our next episode, we may be looking at the Islamic State 2.0. If you take all the places where we're seeing ungoverned space now, North Africa, Sahel, Arabian Peninsula, my guess is over the next two to three years, we will see some sort of next version of ISIS. Former CIA and FBI executive Philip Mudd on our next program. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Okay, face it. You love to binge. You know, on good stuff like cookies, spicy chips, TV shows, and of course, podcasts. Well, that's exactly why Thrilling Tales, the podcast, releases every chapter of its amazing stories on Mondays. So you can binge on the whole thing. So if you need something else to binge on or just something totally entertaining, get Thrilling Tales, the podcast now on the Podcast One app, iTunes, or at podcastone.com.